Hello there. You are listening to Manufacturing Tomorrow, brought to you by the Ohio Manufacturing Institute at The Ohio State University. I'm Katherine Kelly, your host for this segment. Today, we are speaking with Carla Bailo, Assistant Vice President for Mobility Research and Business Development at The Ohio State University. In this role, she helps the university accelerate sustainable mobility and transportation innovation while integrating related research and education across its academic units. She also helps coordinate Ohio State's involvement as the primary research partner for Smart Columbus, a $140 million program to transform Central Ohio into the nation's premier transportation innovation region. Carla is a leader in engineering and vehicle program management with 35 years of experience in the automotive industry. She started at the age of one. (laughs) Before joining Ohio State, she served as Senior Vice President of Research and Development for Nissan North America. She was responsible for vehicle engineering and development operations in Michigan, Arizona, Mexico, and Brazil, managing a $500 million budget and 2,500 employees. In addition to her her Ohio State activities, Carla is currently the 2016-2018 Vice President of Automotive for SAE International, a global association of more than 138,000 engineers and related technical experts in the aerospace, automotive, and commercial vehicle industries. Carla, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. At Ohio State, you have the lead role for mobility. Could you tell our listeners what mobility entails and what emerging opportunities there are for Ohio and U.S. firms in this space? Absolutely. Mobility includes anything that moves goods or people. So we used to always talk about transportation, but when we talk about mobility, that leads you to access for all things like even ecoskeletal becomes part of mobility, bicycles, scooters, the new urban low-speed vehicles that are cropping up everywhere, you know, trucks, buses, ag equipment, um, drones. With the convergence of technology, it's really bringing all forms of mobility into one segment. And does that evolve in in regards to Ohio State's research, engineering, computer technology, communication systems, or do you want to click all of the above? Well, really what's cool about mobility is all facets of the university are involved in some way. Clearly the ag school, the engineering um, colleges, both with propulsion, electrification, um, automation, the algorithms for that, the artificial intelligence is deeply involved. But when you think about the future of mobility, that's where we start talking about human behavior, human-machine interface, trust in the vehicles, public policy and legislation. Today, it's not even even possible to put an autonomous vehicle on on the roads in Columbus, yet we're going to do that as part of Smart Columbus. So, and, and then the liability issues, the insurance issues, the impact to people's health. You know, if we're providing door-to-door transit, where does walking and riding a bike fit in? You know, because we want our community to be healthy. So everybody has a role to play in this when we talk about, you know, the future of mobility and mobility as a service. Where does Ohio rank in the race to greater, greater mobility and autonomy? Do, do we have the supplier networks and, and manufacturing expertise to compete for the jobs of the future? We are 
really um, getting ourselves in that space. To be honest, um, probably within the last three years, our focus has shifted drastically in the state. Um, we're the, the number two uh, manufacturer of um, automotive um, uh, products, including uh, being the largest manufacturer of powertrains. When we look at the disruption coming in the automotive and even in the powertrain space, there's a number of companies now that are saying, we're going to be all electric by 2025. So those companies that today are based in Ohio that are making powertrain components better be thinking about the future of electrification. But what we have here is a great knowledge of mobility, including all aspects. I mentioned before ag. We are one of the largest states uh, producing agricultural products in the nation. And pre precision ag is, is already happening. And precision ag uses the same technology as a self-driving vehicle has. In fact, it's even a little more progressed in terms of sensors to even be able to identify the soil composition. So you're putting the right seed in that particular soil. So comprehensively and in the convergence of technology, yes, Ohio has it all. And now that we've put in place some of the smart mobility initiatives, putting in places to actually test utilizing Transportation Research Center, for example, to be able to test everything from an ATV up through a drone in a contained place. And now we have the infrastructure of Smart Columbus, the 33 corridor, to be able to test on the roadways and in the air, et cetera, there, there's really not a better comprehensive environment than we have here in, in central Ohio and soon, hopefully, within the state and our conjoined states. Let's talk about Smart Columbus a little bit. Uh, for those who may not know much about it, what are the program goals and what have been the latest developments? Smart Columbus is a three- to four-year program, there were two pieces of that. First was the Department of Transportation $40 million um, grant, which was related strictly to mobility, which was providing access for all, providing ladders of opportunity, um, reducing congestion. And then the second part of that was a $10 million grant from Paul Allen's Vulcan Foundation, which was focused on electrification, uh, increasing the penetration of electric vehicles in our in our um, portfolio products here, putting in the infrastructure, the charging infrastructure, and also a big part of that is cleaning up our grid because you need to look at the holistic carbon trail of a product to be able to say it's truly zero emissions. The, the main uh, reason that Columbus was selected was because we included the ladders of opportunity strongly in our proposal, which is truly making mobility democratized, providing access per, for all, putting all of the modes of transit that exist to go from A to B in the city into one place so that you can say you just want to go from A to B and you'll get a, a menu of options, just like if you want an airline flight, you know, the fastest, the cheapest, the least carbon footprint, the healthiest way. Um, and you can choose from those. And then one common payment system. So you don't need to have an account with each of those various providers. You can simply select the route you want to take and then the back the back end of the of the programming will then allocate the funds where they need to go depending on the route you've taken. 
So, you know, that's just the beginning. We'll be putting in a lot of first mile, last mile solutions from public transit. Those will be autonomous shuttles specifically focused um, in the eastern area at first, but then expanding to other areas. And the great news is the university is purchasing an, uh, an autonomous shuttle um, called Ollie from Local Motors. And uh, that vehicle or that uh, uh, autonomous shuttle was just on campus yesterday and uh, the day before, as well as today, um, doing various um, shoots around campus and getting to learn our campus outline and, and going through some of the routes at Easton that we'll be utilizing so that here on campus we can begin to do that um, artificial intelligence machine learning with these devices before we put them into the city and into the public domain, so to speak. So those, uh, the other thing that we're doing is putting a bus rapid transit line in, and that bus rapid transit is going to go directly next to the underserved community of Linden, which is a big focus um, of this initiative. And that bus rapid transit will actually allow people to get from the north to the south side of, of the city within 10 to 15 minutes, which today with the routes and the changing of buses takes considerably longer than that. So off of that route will come first mile, last mile solutions to be able to give people access to jobs, access to health care that they don't have today. The last element is um, truck platooning, which we'll be doing out of the Rickenbacker site, going out to various other distribution hubs. Um, it will start with just two trucks going together. Um, and, and basically, it's it's not very risky, I'll put it that way. Um, the first driver has hands-on, brains-on, feet-on. The second driver, the only thing that's removed is, is their feet, and the following distance gets short enough where you get a vast improvement in fuel economy. And for um, fleet companies where their profit margins are so low, if they can save 6 to 10% fuel economy um, by doing this platooning, it's a huge, it's a huge support for them. So um, eventually that will become larger trains, but uh, again, we're starting to learn and then to modify and improve these systems. And how are you plugging in Ohio State researchers? Right now I have about 150 um, faculty that are involved in some way in this project and over 50 students that uh, have indicated interest. In fact, the students now are starting their own group, bottom-up, called um, Smart Columbus Students. I think they have a more clever name than that, though. And uh, they're actually going to start working. Their first project is going to be helping those with um, uh, any kind of mobility impairment to get around campus. Um, it was started because one of the students actually had an issue where they had to use paratransit on campus, and it was not easy for them. Not only was it not easy to get the paratransit vehicles, but it wasn't easy to get around on campus after they got off that vehicle. So they're starting there, and that also is a big part of Smart Columbus as well. So we'll hope, hopefully be able to take these learnings into the, into the larger um, program that's being adapted for CODA and for the city. Um, the researchers in Columbus, there are 14 working groups as part of Smart Columbus, and there is a faculty lead on each of those 14 working groups to help make the design of experiments, the work breakdown structure, and create the CONOPS for each one of those working groups. 
The others are subject matter experts being brought in as needed. Um, everything from the School of Nursing, School of Social Work, again, law, public policy, geography, psychology, uh, you name it. Because when we talk about, again, a- any way of, of changing human behavior, which is what's going to have to happen to make these initiatives successful, um, it really needs all kinds of disciplines. The other big group that's involved is the urban planning um, and architecture group because when we think about the future of Columbus looking 50 years down the road, um, it's going to be a completely different way of do- doing urban planning than what we do today. You know, Parking structures shouldn't be part of the scenario. Um, creating buildings with different codes than exist today so that we make sure we have a zero waste or a um, zero carbon footprint um, requires a totally different way of thinking. So instead of planning Columbus around roadways, which is what has always happened in most mid-sized Midwestern cities, we want to make Columbus a city built for the citizens and what the citizens want and then bring the goods and, and services in in the right fashion um, to, to really, again, keep a happy, healthy environment in our city. That is such a major cultural shift. And out of all those projects with all the potential impact on the city and other cities, which ones are you finding to be the, the most personally promising? Um, one is, the, of course, the rapid transit allowing people to really move about the city at the speed they need to, and that means the democratization of that and getting rides very affordable. Um, I think this is going to be one of the most significant breakthroughs because, to be very honest, bus transit has a bad reputation, and there are people who simply will not utilize it today, even though it is a great option. Um, It it's not seen as a good way to get around, and we really need to, to just completely throw that away, that getting around by bus or, pe- or public transit is a better option than utilizing what I coin your personal mobility security blanket, which is your own vehicle, which sits, you know, uh, not moving for about 95% of the day. Uh, and you're paying, the latest figure I heard yesterday in a report from AAA, most people are paying about $850 a month for that product that you only use 5% of the time. And I think people just don't realize how much they're paying for that personal mobility security blanket. But we have to provide the options, and we have to provide them in a, a very seamless way to integrate into people's lives so that they will feel comfortable to remove that security blanket. And I think bus rapid transit is one great way because that that mitigates a lot of the inconvenience aspects and also begins to, if we can utilize the public transit more efficiently, that will, of course, drive the cost down as well. And then the first mile, last mile transit coming from those hubs for people who either physically aren't able or just don't care to walk, um, that they have those options as well. And getting those to almost a zero expense so that everybody has equal access to utilize those is critical. Getting to where you are today, and as one of the few female guests who've been 
a force of manufacturing on the show. Can you talk a little about, bit about your career and what you got, got you into this business? Oh, I can talk about that forever. <laughs> but, um, you know, when I go into a manufacturing plant today, especially an automotive plant and smell the paint shop, it just like it, it, I just get so excited because for me, there was nothing better than we were launching a product to see that first car come off the assembly line finished. It was such a great feeling of success. My, I was born and raised in Detroit, and I have automotive in my blood fundamentally. As a child, I was one of these kids when the Detroit Auto Show came to town. I wanted to be the first one there to see the new products. It just was exciting to me. When I look at the front of a car, I immediately... Um, think that car has a personality based on the styling. You know, some look like they're mean, some look, you know, like the VW Beetle looks happy. So I, I always thought of cars as much more than just a way to get from A to B. But quite frankly, graduating from high school in the 70s, at that time, females were expected to do one of two things, become a nurse or become an executive secretary. And I actually went through all of the courses. I could type 90 words a minute. I could do shorthand 120 words a minute. But I also at the same time was taking chemistry and algebra and trig and physics and all these other courses. And fortunately, I had a chemistry teacher. Yeah, I took chemistry in my sophomore year who saw my capability and uh, had two children at the time going to General Motors Institute, a school in Flint that GM subsidized, and started talking to me and my parents, and it changed my entire outlook. So I, have, I always go back to Mrs. Wilson was her name. Um, she completely changed my outlook and what I could do. Uh, without her guidance, I'm certain I wouldn't have, have pursued my passion. And getting into the automotive business, it was, I always wanted to be involved in some way and to be able to actually design the products and work on the products was almost a dream come true. So I started in, started studying engineering and never looked back. And then made your way up the ranks. <laughs> yes, and it, it was a very interesting time. I mentioned it was the 70s. So when I started um Honestly, there wasn't a lot of uh, policies that existed for discrimination and those kinds of things. So when I started, honestly, there were girly posters and girly calendars everywhere I went. Um, when I walked down the assembly line, um, there would be cat calls that would start from the minute I would walk, and they'd go the whole way down the line. It was just normal. And... Because I was so passionate about what I did and I, I, was, I had a lot of confidence in my capabilities, I learned very early there are some battles to fight and there are some things to just ignore or you were going to end up with such a huge chip on your shoulder that you could never recover from that. And I know several women who took that path and it didn't turn out well. So if you garner the respect, then a lot of that honestly stops. A lot of the comments that people think are very offhand stop when, you, when they realize you're very capable and competent. So I always just focused on getting the job done, making clear my expectations in terms of career, and um, you know, kind of behaving like a guy would, you know? Men don't hesitate to, 
talk to you about how great they are and the things that they've done. Women take the take the attitude many times of, I, I'm going to do a great job and people are just going to recognize I'm doing a great job and I'll get promoted. But honestly, that just doesn't happen. And one of the best advice I got one time from a mentor, which by the way, I always sought good mentors and, and talked a lot about what I should and shouldn't be doing. What he said to me was, if you wait for this company to make your career plan, you will be waiting your whole career. You've got to get out there and tell them what you expect and make sure you get the right portfolio so that you can move on you know, and, and succeed and do the things that you want to do. And it was the best advice I ever got from anybody. And it was a white male, probably 30 years older than me, very much ahead of his time. And uh, he, he probably, beyond Mrs. Wilson, is the one who really made me think differently and, and behave differently. Sounds like some of that advice would be what you would uh, transfer to a female engineering student who is thinking about the automotive industry. Are there any other pieces of, pieces of advice you would provide? I think the other one, and if you ever hear Mary Barra talk, who was also a GMI graduate, it's very similar. Never say no. When you're asked to take a job, no matter if you think it's in your bailiwick or you think, why are they asking me to do this? I mean, she ran HR for GM for a while. Why would they put an engineer in charge of HR? Good reason, because they were grooming her to move up. But... Uh, you know, at the time when you when you get certain opportunities, you think, first of all, I don't know why I'm being asked to do this, and I don't really have the skill set to do it. But your answer should always be yes, and then figure it out. You know, ask the right questions and, and delve into it, but never feel that you can't do something, um, and never give the impression that you don't feel you have all the boxes checked, and therefore, you know, I'm not even going to try to do that. You know, take the challenge. You know, the worst that'll happen is you'll fail. And honestly, we all fail a lot of times as we move up the ladder. And it, you recover and you just move, you know, you learn from it. And you make sure in your next opportunity that, you know, you don't do the same thing again. But if you're not failing, you're not trying. So don't be afraid to fail. And if you're asked to do something, your first answer should always be yes, no matter what it is. <laughs> Good advice on any level. Thank you, Carla, for coming on our show. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much.